You're going to love this. Just love it. From Pacifica Radio's KPFK, 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, this is your broadcast. As heard on 90.7 FM, as well as 91.7 FM, KYAQ in Oregon. Coast to coast and around the globe on kpfk.org. On the Stitcher app, on the TuneIn app, on iTunes, on the Progressive Voices channel. Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and of course, five days a week on Radio Sputnik. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me. Uh, Glad you could join us here for another thrilling action-packed adventure, and uh, we will have one for you as ever. We'll be joined in a little bit by Dan Riffle, the former prosecutor, now a lobbyist uh, for the Marijuana Policy Project. We've had some some movement in Congress in the right direction towards, you know, freedom, the stuff that Republicans pretend to care about. Uh, so that will be uh, will be coming up soon. Some uh, marijuana policies and some amazing, you know, for people who don't know. Uh, and and frankly, uh, you know, I don't follow this real closely. But in looking into this, what marijuana dispensaries uh, have to deal with around the country, perfectly legal marijuana dispensaries, these perfectly legal businesses, what they have to deal with because of the contradictions in federal law is just absolutely mind blowing. So we will talk uh, to Dan Riffle about all of that, what's going on in Congress what these businesses have to deal with, and uh, and how much of an effect Big Pharma has on blocking the marijuana industry. All of that is ahead. We've got some breaking news as we go to air today. One of two felony indictments against former Texas Governor Rick Perry was tossed out on Friday. Gives the uh, Republican presidential candidate a huge legal victory, according to AP, in the face of flagging poll numbers for the 2016 race. The third court of appeals in Austin sided with Perry's pricey legal team, stating in a 96-page ruling that the charge of coercion of a public servant uh, constituted a violation of the former governor's free speech rights. Perry, who left office in January, was indicted last August on two charges— on the coercion charge, which has now been thrown out, and a separate charge of abuse of official power, which was not affected by this ruling. Perry has spent more than $2 million on top defense lawyers as he runs for president, even though his 2016 campaign has raised barely half that much. Despite numerous visits to uh, Iowa and New Hampshire, polls show Perry 
badly trailing in a crowded uh, GOP field. These charges all stem from 2013 when Perry publicly threatened and then carried out a veto of $7.5 million in state funding for public corruption prosecutors. He did so after the uh, Democratic head of the uh, that investigative uh, prosecutor's unit was uh, was arrested and convicted of drunk driving. And he said if she did not resign, he would not fund the entire unit. Seven and a half million dollars. And in fact, he ended up not funding it. And and that was, by the way, um, following past instances where prosecutors were arrested for drunk driving and Rick Perry, then governor of Texas, did not call for them to step down. But of course, those prosecutors were Republican. This one was Democratic and she was leading up the public corruption unit that actually goes after corruption inside of government. So uh, the prosecutors say they're still ready to go to trial on the uh, existing count and they're deciding whether or not to appeal the decision from the uh, from the appeals court, which, by the way, was a Republican, uh, a Republican court. I think it was all Republicans uh, who who decided to leave that one. Yeah, uh, was a, the, the ruling came from Republican judges who could have quashed the entire case. But instead, they left a criminal indictment hanging over Rick Perry's head. So that is just in as we go to air. Uh, just in last night after we got off air. Another horrible, another horrible shooting. And it's somewhat ironic as we spent much of the show yesterday speaking with um, former FBI special agent turned 9-11 whistleblower turned 2002 Time magazine person of the year, Colleen Raleigh, about the charges that were filed uh, against the uh, South Carolina uh, AME church shooting uh, shooter. The charges, the hate crimes uh charges that were filed against him and not the terrorism charges, curiously enough. The uh, shooting in uh, Louisiana comes uh, three years after the uh, a very similar shooting, unfortunately, in Aurora, Colorado, at another movie theater. That one uh, killed, I, I believe it was 12 in that uh, incident. It injured dozens more. This one in Lafayette, Louisiana, resulted in the deaths of two moviegoers and injuries of another nine. The shooter subsequently shot himself after reloading, but he was able to get off 13 shots with his semi-automatic weapon. Uh, apparently, the man who killed <clears throat> those people and wounded nine others uh, was mentally ill, was so mentally ill and violent that years ago his wife had his guns and his uh, had his guns removed and his family had him hospitalized against his will before obtaining a court order to then keep him away. In the 1990s, this particular guy frequented uh, frequently appeared on local television call-in shows advocating violence against people involved in abortions. According to Calvin Floyd, who hosted a morning show on WLTZ in Columbus, Georgia, uh, this guy, John Russell Hauser, is his name. He was known by the nickname Rusty. He uh, also espoused other radical views, including his opposition to women in the workplace. Floyd was described as an angry man who made wild accusations about all sorts of topics and politicians. And uh, apparently he was put on the air, uh, this, uh, this host says... To, uh, to counter a Democratic voice because he could make the phones ring. 
The guy owned a bar uh, that uh, lost its liquor license in 2001 because it served minors. And in protest, the guy put up a flag with a swastika on it. Though he claimed to be completely against the Nazi philosophy, he said, quote, the people who used it, the Nazi flag, they did what they damn well pleased. And I guess that's what he was saying the government was doing in this case. Uh, How he ended up getting a semi-automatic weapon uh, is still not known at this hour. We'll continue to follow it. But uh, interestingly, Bobby Jindal, uh, the governor of Louisiana, another presidential hopeful, he he called the shooting, obviously, an awful night for Louisiana. And then he said, well, what we can do now is we can pray. Yes, we can hug these families. We can shower them with love, thoughts, and prayers. That's all I guess he can come up with to do. That's all we can do. All we can do is pray. There is nothing we can actually do about it. Nothing we can actually do about the scourge of guns in society. Nothing we can do. Nothing we can do that allows a, 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 a apparently homeless, mentally deranged man from being able to obtain a semi-automatic weapon with the several magazines. Nothing we can do but pray. That's all we can do. As I said, you know, this comes up at a time, you know, we've talked about on this show about the 2009 report on right wing extremism that was uh, begun during the Bush administration. It came out just after Barack Obama took office and all of the right wingers went nuts. All the folks on Fox News went nuts. It was about right wing extremism and domestic terrorism. And they said, no, why are you picking on right wingers? Of course, there had been one on uh, leftist extremism that they had no problem with. That one came out a few a few weeks prior to that. But the right wing one, oh, that was they were furious and they were able to get a retraction from the government. This draft report written, by the way, by a Republican, uh, they were able to get that retracted. And that unit that looked into domestic terrorism, that looked into right wing extremism, that uh, unit eventually was disbanded, according to the guy who who put together the draft report that was ultimately retracted. So no resources, no, the, the resources were pulled away from looking at, oh, this guy who did the shooting in South Carolina. He was a right wing extremist. This guy who did the shooting uh, last night in Louisville, he was a right wing extremist. But we can't be bothered to look at that. And then we get these charges against the South Carolina shooter. And they're for hate crimes. They're not for terrorism. And that's what we talked with uh, with Colleen Raleigh about on yesterday's program. And just basically the difference between hate crimes and what is regarded as terrorism and how it is that uh, really, you know, it's meaningless propaganda. But, you know, it, it's not meaningless It does mean something when the government describes something as either a hate crime or as terrorism. It means something because it helps us to determine where resources are going to go. Our friend Marcy Wheeler, uh, we've had her on the show many times. She wrote over at Salon about uh, Loretta Lynch, Attorney General Loretta Lynch's press conference when she was asked about, you know, why no charges related to terrorism? Why hate crimes? And Marcy Wheeler writes that Lynch suggested several times hate crimes charges are just as good. As you know, there is no specific domestic terrorism statute. However, hate crimes, as I have stated before, are the original domestic terrorism, said Loretta Lynch. She insisted that the DOJ and the FBI take domestic crimes seriously. 
quote, people may feel because we have such a strong emphasis on terrorism matters since 9-11 that when we talk about matters and do not use that terminology that we do not consider these crimes as serious. But that's not correct, Lynch insisted. She said this way, this should in no way signify that this particular murder or any federal crime is of any lesser significance, except, says Marcy Wheeler, it is by all appearances. When asked by Lynch, when asked, Lynch refused to comment on how DOJ is allocating its resources. But reporting on the increase in terrorism analysts since 9-11 suggests that the FBI has dedicated large amounts of new resources to fighting Islamic terrorism domestically and abroad, Marcy Wheeler notes, and she knows her stuff on this. In addition, there are a number of spying tools that are tied solely to international terrorism, but the DOJ has managed to define in secret domestic terrorism espoused by Muslims in the U.S., as international terrorism. So when it's Muslims doing it, that's international terrorism, and all of these resources go to it. Marcy writes that uh, that means that the FBI has far more tools dedicated to finding tweets posted by Muslims and fewer to find the manifesto that Dylan Roth, the shooter in South Carolina, that the manifesto that he wrote and posted online and that nobody knew about. Speaking about the bravery to take it to the real world against blacks and even Jews. Perhaps most importantly, says Marcy, because of vastly expanded post 9-11 information sharing, local law enforcement offices have been deputized in the hunt for Muslim terrorists, receiving intelligence obtained through those additional spying tools and sharing tips back up with the FBI. But not so. Not so for right wing extremists. Finally. Wheeler says the FBI has an incentive to call Roth's attack in South Carolina something different. As it makes a big deal, as the FBI makes a big deal of its success in preventing terrorist attacks. If the Charleston attack was terrorism, it means that the FBI missed the terrorist plotting while tracking a bunch of Muslims who might not have acted without FBI incitement. That would be all the worse as the FBI might have stopped Roth during the background check that was conducted before he bought the murder weapon in that case. But they didn't stop him because of some confusion and, frankly, lack of resources. Resources matter. That means these names matter because the resources are tied to that word. Terrorism, says Marcy. Hate crimes brought with the assistance of DOJ's Civil Rights Division, as uh, these uh, charges were against Roth, are not the same as terrorist crimes brought by national security prosecutors, nor are they as easy to prosecute. If our nation can't keep African-Americans worshiping in church safe, then we are not delivering national security, she writes. Oh, and if we can't keep moviegoers safe, simply going out to movies then we are not delivering national security. And let's stop conning ourselves and kidding ourselves that we are for lack of terrorist attacks, lack of international terrorist attacks, lack of, lack of Muslim terrorist attacks. The way we deal with national security is just completely out of whack. And oh, by the way, if we really gave a damn about national security, we would do something about guns the way the people in this country would like Yes, I know the people who are in office, who are elected in office, would not like it because they're afraid of being attacked by the National Rifle Association. 
which is a front group for the arms industry, period. So we will continue to have more and more shootings, more and more killings in this country. And then we will pretend that we give a damn about national security. And when more and more Americans keep getting killed every day, we will say, oh, there's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can do but pray. But pray and hug them and hope for the best. Man, these people don't know what they're doing. But they did keep me from talking about Donald Trump in this opening segment. So we'll see if I can get to that a little bit later in the show. And I also hope, if time allows, to take a trip into the bowels of wingnut climate denialism and or trolling. You're welcome to uh, troll me on the Twitters. I am the Bradblog over there. Or you can email me, bradcast at bradblog.com. Going to take a quick break and come back with Dan Riffle of the Marijuana Policy Project. You're listening to the Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Oh, if there's anything Republicans like, it's freedom. We know because they tell us so all the time. They love their freedom to, uh, to do whatever they want, to own whatever guns they want, to carry them into any movie theater that they want. Freedom. Freedom and liberty. Uh, unless it comes to voting, then we can put all kinds of restrictions on your freedom, that fundamental right of voting, which we talk about so much on this program. But when it comes to uh, issues of freedom, of liberty, you know that the Republicans are all over it. They are the party for you. And, uh, and well, we, we've got more proof of that this week. Uh, my next guest will, uh, will fill us in on all of these details. Dan Riffle is a former federal prosecutor from Ohio. He now serves as director of federal policies for the Marijuana Policy Project, the largest organization in the U.S. focused solely on ending marijuana prohibition. MPP's mission is to change federal law to allow states to determine their own marijuana. Po oh, that's something else Republicans love. Allow states to determine their own policies, small government, local decisions. Anyway, uh, to uh, change federal law to allow states to determine their own marijuana policies without federal interference, as well as to regulate marijuana like alcohol in all 50 states, D.C. and the five territories. Uh, we've got some news on all of this now to discuss with Dan coming out of uh, Congress today. Dan Riffle, sir, welcome back to the broadcast. 
Hey, Brad. Thanks for having me back. Good to be here. Sure. Uh, okay. Well, the Senate Appropriations Committee approved a measure on Thursday intended to ensure marijuana businesses have access to banking services. Uh, this was uh, a, a committee vote. It was approved in the Senate. This seems like it would be very good news uh, for your organization, would it not? Yeah, it is. It is good news. I think uh, you know everybody's pretty familiar with the banking issue, basically because marijuana is still illegal under federal law. It's money laundering for a bank to take, uh, you know, to set up a checking account and take deposits from marijuana businesses. And so as an end result, marijuana businesses operate on a largely cash basis, and that's crazy. Uh, state, local, and federal law enforcement have all said, you know, this raises obvious public safety concerns. You're basically putting a bullseye on marijuana businesses and their customers and their employees and anybody within earshot of those businesses uh, because it's an obvious, obvious robbery threat. So and we've been working for some time to make sure that marijuana businesses can access the banking system. We've seen some legislation introduced, like a lot of marijuana legislation, probably not going to go anywhere this year or as long as Chuck Grassley is head of the Judiciary Committee. Uh, but there are some ways that we can sort of, you know, get our agenda you know, introduced in, in Congress and, and get some votes. And we had that opportunity today. The Senate was debating, or the Senate Appropriations Committee was debating a bill to fund the Treasury Department for the year. And uh, Senator Merkley was willing to introduce an amendment for us that says none of the funds that we're making available to the Treasury Department can be used to punish banks that provide services to state legal marijuana businesses. And fortunately, that amendment passed. The vote was a little bit closer than I would like to have seen. And uh, those freedom-loving Republicans, <laughs> we only got three out of the 17 members of the Republicans on the committee to vote for it. But three is all we needed, so we passed it uh, 16 to 14. 16 to 14. And, yeah, you said, uh, Dan Riffle, that you think everybody is familiar with the banking issues. I don't know that they are. And so let me just... Let, let, let's speak about that real quick. So we've got these states now who have allowed uh, how many how many states are we up to now that have allowed either, you know, full recreational use or medical marijuana and so forth that people can essentially walk in off the street, either recreationally or, you know, with, with a, a, yeah. a prescription from their doctor. How many states are we talking about now? Well, it depends on your definition of medical marijuana states because we've now got so many different medical marijuana laws. But our count is 23, plus we also, you know, of those 23, there are four states where recreational marijuana is legal. So 23 medical marijuana states and four in, recreational states. And in all of those states, 23 states, you're saying that those businesses that are set up, that are legally set up, that are licensed by the, uh, by the state or the city or however that uh, works, those businesses that are operating cannot work with a regular banking system, cannot take the, 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 the cash at the end of the day and, and put it into the bank? That's exactly right. Yeah, you, uh, you know, the customer has to come in and pay cash, and that leaves the business with, uh, you know, a big mountain of cash at the end of the day. And, you know, sometimes they can access banks, but the way they do it is basically to lie about the nature of their business. Uh, you know, they'll say that they are a wellness and, uh, you know, nutritional store or that kind of thing, or an herbal supplement store, and then they'll pay somebody, you know, in the back of the house $10 an hour to spray that mountain of cash with debris so it doesn't smell like marijuana when they take it in to make a deposit. Really? Um, it's, it's, it's a crazy, crazy, crazy situation, and, you know, it, it's just nuts to have, you know, a lot of the people who own these businesses are parents, and they're driving their kids to school, and then, you know, the whole time they've got a... a you know, duffel bag in the trunk with, you know, $5,000 in cash in it that they're 
hoping they can find a bank that's willing to take it. You know, employees and, and customers in those businesses are just, you know, keeping their fingers crossed all day that nobody comes in and robs the place, which, you know, if you're if you are a robber, you're more likely to see them out in the cash at a marijuana dispensary than you are, you know, at a bank or, you know, at, at a pharmacy or, you know, convenience store or any other sort of cash intense places. So, and, and uh, mean, yeah, it's, it's a crazy situation. And, and that means they don't take uh, these, none of these businesses actually take credit cards. It's all a cash business. You know, you, again, you can sometimes find a dispensary that takes a credit card, but usually it's because they're lying about the nature of their business or the, wow. or the credit card processor is lying about the nature of their business. So, you know, they might be taking credit cards for a week, and then you know the credit card processor catches on, and so then they can again until they can, you know, find a new processor. And uh, yeah, it, it doesn't work anything like a regular business, which of course is the entire point of of these laws that are passed. Let's treat marijuana like other commodities. Let's not have this be run by criminals. Let's not have this be an all cash, you know, sort of underground looking business. Let's make sure that you know it's run like any other business. People can come in, pay with a credit card, and. You know, it makes it easier that way for the state to monitor transactions and, you know, enforce regulations, collect taxes. That's the other thing is, you know, we've seen dispensaries that pay their taxes by putting the cash on a pallet and then loading it into a Brinks truck and driving it over to the you know, state or county oh. auditor's office. So oh my it, God. It, it's ludicrous. Wait, no, that's that, you're not joking. They're, they literally do that. No. They literally put cash on a pallet and then drive it over to pay their taxes. Or hire a Brinks truck to drive it over and pay their taxes, yeah. That's it's just amazing. I'm speaking with Dan Riffle, Director of Federal Policies for the Marijuana Policy Project. Uh, you said today in a statement following this, uh, this vote in the Senate Appropriations Committee that marijuana businesses in Colorado alone look to be uh, on pace for nearly $1 billion in revenue this year. So we're talking about $1 billion of cash floating around in yeah. Colorado because of these businesses? Yeah, yeah. Every month they're doing a little over $40 million in recreational sales and a little over $30 million in medical sales. So, you know, you add it up and we're looking at over $800 million in, in sales just in Colorado alone. And, oh. of course, now Washington's fully up and running. So, you know, Washington should be close to that fairly soon. And then, of course, Oregon and Alaska should be up and running, if not by the end of this year, early next year. So we'll be up to four states and... uh it's just completely, it, it's ludicrous and it's untenable. And you know, of all of the ways in which the conflict between state and federal marijuana laws you know, manifests itself, I think this banking issue is the one that you know, is pretty universally recognized as, as a situation that really needs to be solved soon. Yeah, I would, I would think so. And you know, I'm glad we stopped to talk about it because I think because you're immersed in it you know, every day, you think that everybody knows about this. I don't think people really do. I don't think people understand the... Uh, the, the the size of this actual problem. Okay, so Jeff Merkley, a senator from uh, Oregon, Democratic senator from Oregon, uh, got this amendment into this bill in the Senate Appropriations Committee. Uh, but you say Chuck Grassley, the um, Iowa senator, Republican Iowa senator, he's not going to allow this to go through in the Senate, as you can tell? Well, so this is an appropriations amendment. So this is just a limiting amendment that says this is how the Treasury Department can spend its money. It's not changing federal law to say marijuana is legal or that banks can you know, provide services to the industry legally. It just says Treasury can't spend any money to punish banks. Oh, so it's okay. a little bit different. So this is, this is going to go into the, the, the Senate's draft of the, um, 
you know, the financial services appropriations bill. Mm-hmm. We were hoping to pass the same amendment over on the House side, but it looks like the House isn't going to consider any more budget bills. The uh, the Republicans have pretty much given up on the appropriations process over there because it just got too contentious for them. So um, this is going to go, I don't know how, how well people remember last year when there was the whole omnibus situation. Basically, every time the federal government needs to be funded, the way that Congress does that now is they wait until about 11.55 the night before the federal government shuts down. Yes. And then they hastily assemble, you know, a compromise bill. So right. We'll be there at about 11.54 the night before the federal government shuts down, hoping to, you know, have this measure inserted into whatever compromise draft they come up with. So we're, we're trying to pass as many of these as we can so that we have as much ammunition as possible for those, those negotiations so that we can get you know, protections for states and access to bank and make sure that vets, you know, can access medical marijuana through the VA system and, and all of these sorts of things. So basically all this would do is is say the Treasury Department cannot uh, go after banks. Now, is this something that uh, President Obama could do by executive order? As I understand, has, hasn't he already directed the DOJ to not enforce uh, federal marijuana laws in states where it has been made legal. Couldn't he also, uh, by a similar measure, instruct the Treasury Department to leave banks alone when it comes to uh, businesses that legally operate in uh, in the marijuana business? There's certainly some things that the administration can do, and in fact, they have taken some steps. So last year, uh, the Treasury Department put out a memo that says you know, there's all sorts of, they're called suspicious activity reports. Basically, anytime there's a large cash uh, deposit or transaction, the bank has to file what's called a suspicious activity report with the Treasury Department. And uh, what the what the memo put out last year says is, we understand that there's some marijuana businesses out there and some banks are interested in serving them, but they don't know how to file these suspicious activity reports. So we're going to put out a memo that, you know, creates three new classes of them for the marijuana industry. Uh, this is how you you know you go about complying with uh, regulations around them, and then coupled with that, the Department of Justice put out a memo that says on the criminal side, not on the regulatory side, but on the criminal side for money laundering, we are not going to prioritize prosecutions of banks for serving the marijuana industry. Now, you can imagine the difference between you know a a green rush entrepreneur who's mm-hmm. willing to risk you know, federal mandatory minimums to commit a federal felony by selling marijuana with the hopes of getting rich versus a uh, regulatory compliance lawyer at Chase Bank or Wells Fargo, they're going to be significantly more risk averse. They're going to be a lot more cautious about what they tell their bank you know, managers they can and can't or should and shouldn't do. So for the federal government to say to banks, hey, go ahead and serve the marijuana industry, we're not we're probably not going to prosecute you. We're not. We're not going to prioritize prosecuting you for doing so. That's not particularly reassuring no. to those guys. No, it is not. And so, obviously, what is needed is a, just a clear bill that says, you know, if if uh, a company is is legally in the marijuana business, they should be left alone. And this is what uh, Jeff Merkley has also introduced: uh, the Marijuana Business Access to Banking Act. Uh, that would amend federal banking laws to prevent banks from actually being punished for providing services to state legal marijuana business. Now, it's apparently co-sponsored by uh, Cory Gardner, a Republican from Colorado, Michael Bennett, Senator Michael Bennett, Democrat from Colorado, Senator Rand Paul, Republican from Kentucky, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from uh, Massachusetts, Senator Ron Wyden, 
uh, also Democrat from Oregon, and Patty Murphy, Democrat from Washington. But that's a several. That's a bipartisan bill. You got Rand Paul, Cory Gardner. Uh, this seems, and you know, we joked about it at the top of the segment here, but this seems like it should be an issue for Republicans. And I have always. I've always thought that, you know, the first party to get to jump full in to the, you know, support of marijuana uh, ending the prohibition on it is going to have a huge number of voters coming to their party, young voters who, you know, would get behind either the Republicans or the Democrats, whoever gets out in front of this issue. Um What's the holdup here? What's the holdup uh, with Republicans? What's the holdup with Democrats as far as uh, jumping in uh, fully behind medical marijuana and, and not just medical marijuana, but ending prohibition on marijuana and uh, and the support at the banks and, and so forth? What's the holdup in the two parties? And also, along, uh, while we're on the topic, well, we'll get to it in a second. I want to ask you about the presidential candidates uh, and where they are. But where are the parties at this point? Yeah. Well, just to explain the party, so the Democrats are pretty much there. Uh, you know, the vote that we had today in the Senate Approach Committee, there are 13 Democrats on that committee, and 12 out of 13 voted for it. The one who didn't was Dianne Feinstein from California. I cannot yeah. explain how a senator from California could vote against it, because that's the sort of epicenter of this problem. She's the epicenter of a lot of problems, uh, Dan. Yeah, but anyway, yeah, go ahead. She is a long-time, long-time opponent of, of sensible marijuana reform. Uh, but still, 12 out of 13 of the Democrats on the committee. But we only got yeah. three out of the 17 Republicans. And in fact, we had a, a somewhat similar vote over on the House side last month. This one says DOJ can't send any of its funds to interfere with state marijuana laws, not just medical marijuana laws, but even adult use, you know, recreational laws. We got 206 votes on that, which was more than we expected. Uh, that was that was a positive thing, even though we didn't pass it. We were we were pleased with the number of votes that we got. And the vast majority of Democrats in the House voted for that. But we only got about a third of the Republicans. We got the, the Republicans who are, you know, very uh, fervently, you know, believe in the Tenth Amendment and federalism and states' rights. But most of the conserv- most of the Republicans are, you know, they're sort of moral conservative types who are, you know, still very pro-drug war, very anti-drugs, and, and you know, think marijuana is a gateway drug and all of those sorts of things. So we still have a little ways to go there. And the other part of the problem, too, with Republicans is, number one, you know, these guys have to run in Republican primaries. They're mm-hmm. not just running in the general electorate. So even though, you know, 55% of Americans think marijuana ought to be legal, in order for them to get elected and run for office, they have to first pass the test with Republican primary voters. And the fact of the matter is Republican voters are just not there yet on legalization. Only about 30, 35, maybe 40% of them support legalization depending on on where you're at and how you ask the question really uh, and then the other thing is is and yet, and, and, and yet, that's, actually before you get to gerrymandering so the republican voters are still it's still a minority that support it but as far as the general electorate are we at the point now where uh it's that a majority supports uh, legalizing marijuana yeah, yeah. About every every major national poll, Gallup, uh, Pew, CNN, you know, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post. There's been a lot of national polls that have been run in the last six months, and they've all found somewhere between 53, 55, 56 percent of Americans think marijuana ought to be legal. Opposition's down to about 43, 44 percent, and then mm-hmm. you know there's your usual four or five percent that's undecided. So it's about by about a 10 point margin. Um, you know, legalization is leading now, and that's that's never happened before. Where it's the first time in history where you know a majority thinks marijuana ought to be legal, 
But, you know, Congress is, if you look at the underlying demographics of those polls, you'll see that older voters are the most likely to oppose this. Uh-huh. And, of course, Congress is disproportionately full of old white men. So, <laughs> yes. Um, you know, well, they they uh, come from that demographic. Old white men, however, who, who are interested in uh, increasing revenue without, you know, having to blatantly, uh, you know, add new taxes. I, I'm surprised they're not looking at what is going on in Colorado and the money coming in. I mean, we're talking about... Uh, a huge amount of money coming into places like Colorado uh, to the to the tax base. No, from from this uh, legalization. Well, there is, but you know, the the one thing I would say to caution with that, and in fact, just yesterday, uh, Gavin Newsom, who's the lieutenant governor out in California, just put out a major report about you know what needs to be in the legalization initiative that runs next year in 2016 in California. And one of the things that they said is, yes, we should make marijuana legal. But let's not concentrate on the revenue side. This isn't about making millions of dollars in tax revenue. This should be a law and order, public health, and public safety thing. So let's make sure that you know law enforcement can focus on real crimes, violent criminals, and real threats to public safety, and not mm-hmm. be you know arresting and prosecuting adults. And let's make sure that you know adults who want to use marijuana instead of alcohol, since marijuana is dramatically safer and, and not linked to violent behavior, are able to do that. But let's not necessarily focus on the revenue because the downside of focusing on revenue is. You know, the more people smoking marijuana, the more revenue you make. So, you you know, you end up with a situation where the state is, you know, almost in the position of wanting to maximize marijuana use <laughs> in order to maximize revenue. So that's right. that's one of the cautions that they offer. And, right. you know, I get that. I, I come from the law and order side myself. I'm not a, you know, pro-marijuana activist so much as I'm a pro-common sense activist. Mm-hmm. Uh, but certainly, I mean, if you're a Republican in Congress, you know, there's the tax revenue to be made, and then there's the savings. You know, we, we spend billions of dollars every year on marijuana prohibition, and it's not having any impact on, if anything, it's having a negative impact. Marijuana is more potent, more available, and, and cheaper than it's ever been. So um, let's try something that, that hasn't been a, a proven failure for 40 years. And what's the, uh, where are the, uh, the, the presidential candidates at this point? Uh, you, you put out a statement saying that it appears many, if not most, of the top 2016 presidential candidates uh, agree that it's time to reform marijuana laws. Uh, where are they? Is there, uh, who is good on this and who is not good on this in both the Republican and the Democratic side of the equation? Well, you mentioned Rand Paul was you know, co-sponsor of that Access to Banking Act. Mm-hmm. He's also a co-sponsor of the, the CARES Act, which is the big medical marijuana bill that's pending in the Senate. Uh, and, you know, not surprisingly, since he's co-sponsored a couple of bills, his rhetoric is probably the best of any of the, the candidates in the field. In fact, at MVP, we've, we've contributed pretty significantly to him. We gave him $15,000 and uh, encouraged him to come to a... Uh, fundraiser at the uh, NCIA, the Cannabis Industry Business Conference there in Denver, which he did do. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think Rand Paul is kind of, at least at this point, has been the best of the candidates in the field. But there are a few other candidates who we gave pretty good grades to. On the Democratic side, uh, Jim Webb and Bernie Sanders are both you know, generally supportive of decriminalization and open-minded on legalization. Hillary Clinton got an okay grade from us. She has kind of a wait-and-see approach, but, but does favor states' rights. And then on the Republican side, it's a mixed bag. Uh, you've got some guys like Ted Cruz and Jeb Bush um, who have said, you know, I'm not necessarily myself in favor of legalization, but I do think that this should be a state issue. So if the voters of Colorado or Washington or, you know, California or other states decide they want to make marijuana legal, I wouldn't, as president, 
you know, use federal resources to go in and enforce federal law or try to overturn the law in those states. That ought to be up to the states to decide. But then you've got some other guys like Rick Santorum and Chris Christie uh, who have been a little bit more vocal about saying, you know, marijuana is the devil weed and I will do everything in my power to stop legalization and I will go into Colorado and enforce federal law in those states. So, um, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of all over the map. But you can go, you can get all of the quotes from all the candidates and, and our, all of our grades on them on our website. Just go to mpp.org slash president. Uh, I've got just a minute or two left, and, and frankly, uh, Dan, this topic deserves probably more than the minute I have left, but I just want to get your thoughts on this, and we, we will revisit this again in the in the near future. But in Colorado, um, they've just, the you know, where they've got it legalized as a whole, um, recreationally and everything else, uh, last week the Colorado Board of Health rejected adding post-traumatic stress disorder to the list of conditions for which medical marijuana can be prescribed. Uh, so uh, where are we on the, uh, you know, the studies, the information concerning uh, the effective treatment of PTSD with marijuana? Is, is that now a known quantity at this point, or is the jury still out on, on the effects of uh, uh, pot on, on PTSD? It's very preliminary data, quite frankly. Uh, what we do have, the, the small amount of data that we do have, is positive. It does show, you know, it is indicative that marijuana can be helpful. But no question, uh, as with all things medical marijuana, all conditions and all forms of medical marijuana, it's very, very, very difficult to do that research. And, and the federal government makes it un, unnecessarily and incredibly difficult to do that research. So, you know, we talked earlier about Chuck Grassley and, and how he's sort of a problem and mm-hmm. you know, has the, the war on drugs mindset. That being said, the one area where I think he has expressed some interest and Diane Feinstein as well has expressed some interest is in removing barriers to research and making sure that scientists are able to look at medical marijuana and, you know, what works, what doesn't work, what conditions can it treat, how can we treat it, how can we facilitate, you know, development of, of marijuana-based drugs. And so, you know, that's one area where I expect there to be some movement. But, you know, that's the frustrating part about this, this decision in Colorado is you have people saying on the one hand, well, you know, there's not enough research out there, so we can't approve this. Well, of course there's not, because you're actively obstructing that research from happening. Well, that's 22. Yeah, and it is. Uh, you've got this uh, researcher, Sue Sisley, uh, an Arizona phys- uh, physician. She's been researching the effect of marijuana on veterans suffering PTSD, has been awarded a $2 million grant from the state of Colorado for a study that has been approved by the FDA. But she can't go forward with the study. The study is on hold because uh, she's got to get a, a, a specific strain of cannabis, but it's got to come from a federally approved facility, and apparently she can't get it. The federally approved facility is not making this uh, this strain available to her. Yeah, I, I, yeah. And it's these... It's, it's, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say it's... The National Institute on Drug Abuse has a monopoly on the supply of marijuana, and it's, it's actually the Drug Enforcement Administration that requires that. NIDA doesn't ask for or necessarily want to have that monopoly, but the DEA refuses to license anybody else. So, you know, if, if this is any other drug, the way it works is you, you know, obtain it from any number of, of legal sources here within the country, or if there's not enough legal sources in the U.S., you can ship it in from another country. Or if there's not enough sources out there, you can you can apply for a license from DEA to make it yourself. Uh, Sativex, which is a drug that's being developed by GW Pharmaceuticals, that's a marijuana extract, 
they had to make that drug in, in the UK because the UK was willing to allow them to develop their own strain of marijuana and then, you know, extract it into, into this medication. But they couldn't do that here in the U.S. because the DEA refuses to license uh, additional providers of marijuana. And so, you know, there's only the one source, and it's grown at the University of Mississippi. It's basically ditch weed if you talk to any researcher. Uh, they don't have a whole lot of it, although the DEA is trying to up production capacity there. But really, the answer is not more marijuana coming from you know, the one source from within the U.S. government. The, the answer is allowing drug production companies to do what they would with any other drug, including other Schedule I drugs, and that is you know, multiple private channels for them to obtain this drug so that they can obtain the, the form of it that they need to do their studies and the amount of it that they need to do you know, the drug development to, to develop these kind of medications. Uh, and I think, you know, we are going to make some progress there this year. Well, I, you know, I hope so. The uh, The article that I was looking at was in uh, a, a Colorado uh, paper uh, by Patricia Calhoun with the headline, Was Big Pharma Behind Colorado's Rejection of Medical Marijuana for PTSD? And uh, that's a, a topic I'd like to get into at some point uh, because, you know, I, I have been absolutely furious, absolutely furious at lawmakers uh, who are making it harder for people to to quit smoking, to quit uh, tobacco, uh, and move to e-cigarettes? And uh, it appears to be, and it's hard to you know get uh, you know my finger on it here, but it appears to be that big pharma, you know, is is into uh, they are big nicotine. They make a lot of money from the patches and the gums, and yes, the inhalers, and they seem to be uh, stopping people from saving their lives in quitting cigarettes and going to e-cigarettes uh, to to vaping. And uh, I'm wondering if there is something similar at work here. At least this researcher uh, who has been given this two million dollar grant seems to think. Uh, that it is, uh, you know, Big Pharma and APA, the American uh, Psychological Association, I guess, um, which uh, has its own problems, as we talked about earlier this week, when it comes to torture. But I, I realize that's all beyond uh, your field of expertise here. Um, but before I let you go, and any thoughts? Has Big Pharma gotten in the way of any of uh, any of this? Well, you know, you mentioned with the vape. Uh, with the e-cigarettes mm-hmm. and, and, you know, opposition to that, uh, you know, I, I there's a similar situation in the marijuana industry where there's a lot of demonizing of edibles and of vape pens and of vaporizing. And, you know, my answer to that is, you know, say what you will about edibles, still, just like any other form of marijuana, you can't overdose and die on them. You might have too much of it and, you know, go to bed early. <laughs> yes. uh, you might have an unpleasant experience if you're a tourist and you consume too much of it. But, you know, they're getting better about regulating them and, and labeling them. But, you know, this is a non-smoked form of marijuana. You know, the, the primary uh, detriment of marijuana consumption is, you know, you're, you're burning something and inhaling the byproducts mm-hmm. of combustion. So if there is a non-smoked form of marijuana out there that people seem to like, we should be encouraging that. Uh, you know, we should be looking at how do we improve this, how do we make it safer, and how do we facilitate more of this so that we can shift people away from smoking marijuana towards non-smoked forms of marijuana, mm-hmm. just like we're doing with, uh, or we, we should be doing with, with cigarettes. So Right, um, but they yeah, are demonizing it's, it's, that, it's, it's too. A similar situation. Yeah. You... But, but, yeah, and, and in, my, in my experience, most of the opposition to this stuff comes not necessarily from big pharma, but from big law enforcement. It's usually, mm. you know, the, the HITSA, the High Intensity Drug Trafficking uh, Task Force, and, you know, Sheriff's Association, and Chiefs of Police Association, and then also the treatment and rehab uh, industry. 
that's uh, a lot of the funding that, that you see at Project SAM comes from the American Academy of Addiction Medicine. Mm. You know, there's a lot of overlap of board members from the treatment industry and, and, and the Academy of uh, Addiction Medicine. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily know that it's coming from, from Big Pharma, but, uh, you know, certain, there's no shortage of opposition out there. We will uh, pick all of that up on another day. Dan Riffle, always great to talk to you. Uh, Dan Riffle from the Marijuana Policy Project. Check them out at mpp.org. Thanks again, Dan, and uh, I hope we'll be talking to you again soon about all of this. All right. Take care. Thanks again for having me, Brad. You bet. Okay, a quick break, and we're back with more Bradcast, uh, well, either on Trump or on some deep right-wing trollage. Although, now that I think about it, is there much of a difference? I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. Stay tuned. As I walked out in the streets of Laredo, as I walked out in Laredo one day, I spied a young cowboy wrapped up in white linen. All wrapped in white linen and cold as the clay. I think that cowboy was Donald Trump, <laughs> who was visiting uh, the streets of Laredo recently. Uh, welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman with our last few minutes here. So we'll devote them to Donald Trump. It means we're going to have to, uh, Des, I know you'll be upset to hear that we're going to have to hold the climate denier trollage for another day. And, oh, well. But we got plenty of it. And by the way, you can feel free to troll me all you like on the Twitters. I am the Brad blog, both there and at Facebook. You can uh, you can troll me or you can say nice things about me. Your pick. We know which one you're going to choose. Make my day. Anyway, uh, Donald Trump. Yeah. So what did he do? Does he, he visited uh, Laredo. Yes, he he visited the border crossing. Your town, major, your state. In Texas. my state of yeah. Texas, my home state of Texas, he visited the border crossing with Mexico in Laredo, Texas. Yeah, he flew in with his with his huge plane and a huge entourage. Trump Force One. Trump, really? Well, Is that I think what, somebody, you, one of the journalists called I it like that. that. Because he made quite the entourage. Yes, with he it. did. And he had, uh, you know, 10, very presidential. 10 SUVs, cops, everything. Very presidential. Which, frankly, was brilliant. Was brilliant. And this drives Republicans crazy. The other candidates in the race crazy because, you know what? Donald Trump is acting like he's already the president. Like he's already won. This guy, he's going for it. He's, go, you know, he's not dropping it. This is, this is for real. Well, at least he's pretending like it's for real. But he's doing what all of the other guys should be doing. Now, I don't know that they have the money to uh, to get their own plane with their branded with their name on it yet. And these uh, huge entourage. But he's he's running like he's already got the nomination. He's running like he's already the president. And it drives the other candidates crazy because people look at it and they go, oh, yeah, I'm going to vote for that guy. He's uh, look how presidential he is. Donald Trump has cracked the code. Donald Trump has cracked the code on how to run for uh, president as a Republican, and it drives all of the other Republicans crazy. He knows how to run and how to win as a Republican. The thing that the, the, the Republicans, he's better at being a Republican 
than the Republicans are. And that ticks them off. That drives them absolutely crazy. So during, uh, you know, this 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 pretend photo op uh, at, at the border fence, uh, there was a couple of different things. Uh, maybe we'll have just uh, time for one of them here. But one of the things that he's done, one of the ways that he's cracked the Republican code for running for president is to say stuff, to promise stuff. And then when you're asked for specifics about that stuff, walk away. Just walk away and declare victory. That's what he does. Here's an example of that. He was asked, you know, he's he's talked about how he's going to not just build a wall across the border, but he's going to build a wall and he's going to make Mexico pay for it. Because illegal immigration is such a problem in this country. It causes so much crime and so much rape. Which, by the way, it doesn't. Donald Trump says it does. But, you know, first generation uh, immigrants, uh, crime rate among them is way lower than it is for people who have been here for a while and figured out the American way. But in any event, uh, Casey, uh, what's her name? Casey Hunt. Casey Hunt of MSNBC. Of MSNBC uh, asked uh, Donald Trump, what does he plan to do about the 11 million undocumented immigrants that are already here in the country. Here was that exchange. What would you do with the 11 million undocumented immigrants who are already here? The first thing we have to do is but strengthen our that. borders, and past after that. that, we're going to have plenty what, of time to talk about it. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Plenty of time. Boom. I'm not going to talk about it. You've asked me the really, really hard question, the, the, the question that almost took down Mitt Romney. Remember his uh, self-deportation? Yeah. That was his answer to the... Uh, to how we're going to get rid of all of these uh, undocumented immigrants here in this country. So he avoided that question. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to run for president. He has cracked the code. And that's why he is soaring to the top. And that's why, you know, they think they're going to get him out of this race. And they might. He might somehow blow himself up. But in the meantime, they are all learning from him. And it is driving them crazy. Because he knows how to run for president as a Republican. Make stuff up. Say stuff that uh, your base wants to hear. And then when you're asked for detail, well, how would that actually work, Mr. Trump? What would you actually do? Gotta go. Bye-bye. We'll talk about that later. That's the way you run as a Republican. The Republicans aren't asking for specifics. They don't care. They want your bravado. They want your plane. They want you to pretend to be a president. They want you to look presidential. They want you to play the part of a president. They want an actor for president. They worship the actor that we had as president. That's it. That's why they love Ronald Reagan, because he looked like a president. He acted like what they think a president should look and act like. And that is exactly what Donald Trump is doing. And it is driving the other Republicans in the race absolutely bonkers. But I need to add, that's not a very long drive. My thanks today to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, And to our guest, Dan Riffle, the uh, former prosecutor and uh, now of Marijuana Policy Project, MPP.org. Always great to talk to him. And it's always great to talk to you. Thank you for taking part of your day or night to join us here. If you missed any portion of the broadcast, stop on by bradblog.com, where you can download today's show and all of our shows. 
We will be ba- we will be back with you soon. Until then, find me on the Twitters. I am the Brad Blog, and over at Facebook, the Brad Blog. Otherwise, we'll see you soon. I'm Brad Friedman. Oh, good luck, world.